get used to this. <laughs> I still try to reach down to the mic pack and hit a switch because I had to, uh, for about eight years, I had to flick a switch to turn myself on. Now I'm afraid to say anything. The whole service, just in case somebody uh, turned me on back there. So, But I'm excited to be preaching this morning. I'm excited to continue on in the book of Acts and uh, where we left off. If you recall, if you were with us last time, we left off at the end of chapter 1. We covered a lot of ground last week. We won't cover quite so much ground this week. Uh, but where we are as far as the events go in the book of Acts is the disciples, all of them, the church, is waiting for the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem as Jesus had instructed them to do. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. That promised power that Jesus taught about comes in chapter 2. Before the church was held back, and now they are sent out into the world. You know, on just kind of a separate note, this is extra credit before we get started this morning. The Christian life is a life of seasons. It's a life of seasons. There are times as individuals we have to wait on God, as the disciples, the church had to in Jerusalem. There are other times where we're more active and things are happening and we're just busy serving the Lord and you kind of have to learn to expect that the Christian life has an ebb and a flow of ministry. There are waiting times, there are working times, and we're going to see in chapter 2 that the church goes from waiting to working. So follow along with me in chapter 2 as we read verses 1 through 13 together, and then we'll get into uh, the study of this passage this morning. Verse 1 says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed. And we're in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, these men are full of new wine. This event in Acts chapter 2 is what we would refer to as Pentecost. It was a monumental moment in church history and in the book of Acts. And if you would look at, as I've already, we've already discussed together, this, the book of Acts, is the second volume of Luke's book to Theophilus. So if you were to go back and look at volume number one, the Gospel of Luke, you would discover, if you had put them side by side, that Luke places Pentecost in his second volume in the same place he places the birth of Christ in his first volume. 
So just as the the birth of Christ launches the gospel of Luke, Pentecost launches the book of Acts uh, in, in this book. I just thought that was kind of interesting. We know Pentecost in church history as the coming of the Holy Spirit, but the Jews knew Pentecost very differently. Pentecost is the New Testament name for the Feast of Weeks. This feast was when the wheat harvest was celebrated with a one-day festival in which special sacrifices were offered. Other festivals in in the Jewish practice were associated with important historical events. We all know of Passover being associated with the exodus from Egypt. Uh, And the Feast of Weeks was associated with God's covenant with Noah and with Moses. In the second century, the Jews associated Pentecost with the day when the law was given on Mount Sinai. So for the Jews, the the festival, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, uh, was a completely different thing than what we would think of today. The word Pentecost means 50th, because it occurs on the 50th day from the second day of unleavened bread. So we talked about that before also, how that between Easter and Pentecost are 50 days, and Jesus spent 40 of those days with the disciples. In the Old Testament, it's called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest, and the primary object of this feast was to thank God for the blessings of the harvest. If you want to learn more about that, you would find it in Deuteronomy chapter 16 in verses 10 and 11, where it says, Thou shalt keep the Feast of Weeks unto the Lord thy God with the tribute of a freewill offering of thine hand, which thou shalt give unto the Lord thy God according as the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. And thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant and the Levite that is within thy gates and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are among you in the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name there. So the Jews would celebrate this festival, the Feast of Weeks, on what we now know of as Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 reveals to us what a spirit-filled body of believers can accomplish. Acts chapter 2 shows us what a spirit-filled church can accomplish. All of these disciples, all 120 of them, were just ordinary men and women. And you and I are also like these disciples. We can accomplish extraordinary tasks if we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The only thing that made the difference in this church is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. You and I have that Spirit. You and I have been given that same gift, the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And so as we go through this chapter this morning, in the back of your mind, think about what drives you. What motivates you? What empowers you to serve the the Lord Jesus Christ? And does your life show the marks of a life that is led by and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God? Because that is the difference maker in the book of Acts, is that the church was filled with the Holy Ghost. So in verses 1 and 2, notice first of all the arrival of the Spirit. The arrival of the Spirit. Just as Jesus had said, the Spirit comes. In verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. There's four things we can notice about the arrival of the Spirit. First of all, they were unified. 
Am I repeating myself? We've said this before already in the book of Acts, but it's worth mentioning again. All the disciples there, 120 church members there, were in one accord. They were unified. They had a common purpose. They had a common goal. They had a common desire. And that purpose and that goal and that desire superseded everything else and every other difference or disagreement that they may have had otherwise. We find the church in Acts chapter 2 focused on fellowship and on prayer. They waited for the Spirit and they were unified in doing so. These 120 believers that were gathered together were gathered just inside the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. And it's possible that this upper room was somewhere near the temple itself. This is a Bible truth that you will find all throughout the New Testament. No one can experience the fullness of the Spirit of God that is not in unity with the church. No one can be filled with the Spirit that is not in unity with his fellow believers. That's a Bible truth. And you find it all throughout the New Testament. And here we find that the church was unified uh, before the Spirit came. Not only were they unified, this event was unscheduled. I like what it says here in verse 1, the day of Pentecost was fully come. God had a specific moment in mind. It reminds me of when it says in Galatians, you know, when the fullness of times, when the fullness of times had come, God sent his son. Uh, when the, the day of Pentecost was fully come, we can't expect God to work on our timetable. He had the right moment in mind. Uh, Jesus did not tell the disciples what day to expect the Spirit to show up. But when the day of Pentecost was fully come, when God's timing was fully fulfilled, the Spirit came. The arrival of the Holy Spirit was unscheduled in the mind of the church. They did not bring it down on themselves. The arrival of the Holy Spirit did not come in any way, shape, or form because of the acts of the church. They did not bring Him down through their 10-day uh, prayer meeting or through fellowship. The Holy Spirit came because God sent Him when the day of Pentecost was fully come. The arrival of the Spirit was a sacred event ordained by God and His plan for the church. I like what one author said, We must not conclude that this 10-day prayer meeting brought about the miracles of Pentecost, or that we today may pray as they did and experience another Pentecost. Like our Lord's death at Calvary, Pentecost was a once-for-all event that will not be repeated. It was unscheduled. The Spirit came when God intended Him to come, and the disciples did not know that He was coming on that day. It was also unexpected. Jesus had instructed the disciples to wait. To wait. Go to Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they were surprised when He finally did arrive. They weren't prepared for what happened. They weren't expecting what happened. They didn't have all the details. They didn't know the date or the time. God interrupted their schedule in order to fulfill His. We likewise are waiting for something. We're waiting for Christ to call home His church. We're waiting for what we refer to as the rapture. We know that it's coming, that it could happen at any time, that it's imminent. Nevertheless, 
we have no ex- no uh, idea what day or when or how that's going to occur. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Behold, in verse 51, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. It's going to interrupt whatever we're doing at the time. And what I love to, to notice here in Acts chapter 2 is that the disciples were sitting. It says the Spirit came, the rushing mighty wind in verse 2, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. They were just hanging out together, praying together, fellowshipping together. They were sitting down. They maybe weren't exactly praying at that particular moment. Who knows what they were up to? They were sitting down and the Spirit came and interrupted their meeting. They were just sitting around the house in the upper room. It was unexpected. It was unscheduled. They were unified. And notice the filling of the Spirit here was also universal. It wasn't restricted to just the 12 apostles. It was not restricted to only the men in the church. It doesn't say that. It was not even restricted to the ones who would preach in public in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit fell on and filled every believer in that upper room. They were all empowered by the Spirit for witnessing and service. And folks, we have that same power today. We are instructed in Scripture in several ways regarding the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, there are five specific commands for you and I regarding the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. I'll just go through these rapid fire and you can study them yourself. I've included the references in your notes, but we're told to quench not the Spirit, which implies that we can quench the Spirit, and we do. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quench not the Spirit. We're told to grieve not the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. We are commanded to walk in the Spirit. In Galatians 5, verse 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're told to pray in the Spirit in the book of Jude, verse 20. It says, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, uh, faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. And we're also told in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So what is then, these are five commands given to us about the Spirit, what is the baptism of the Spirit? Here we go. What is the baptism of the Spirit? To truly understand what the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit, we must realize that the filling of the Spirit and being baptized of the Spirit are not the same thing. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. All believers are baptized in the Spirit. Not all believers are filled with the Spirit. So they're two different things. And on the day of Pentecost, at that one moment, both 
Both the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Spirit were happening simultaneously. Jesus told them they would be baptized with the Spirit, just as John baptized with water, so you'll be baptized by the Spirit. They were baptized and filled. One author says that Luke uses the word fill to describe the experience. This word is used when people are given an initial endowment of the Spirit to fit them for God's service. Also, when they are inspired to make important utterances, related words are used to describe the continuous process of being filled with the Spirit or the corresponding state of being full of the Spirit. These references indicate that a person already filled with the Spirit can receive a fresh filling for a specific task or a continuous filling. It is also important to observe that what is here called a filling is called a baptizing in other passages, a pouring out, and a receiving in other passages. The basic act of receiving the Spirit can be described as being baptized or filled, but the word baptize is never used for subsequent, subsequent or following experiences. A good deal of the theological confusion would be avoided if we were careful to use these terms in their biblical manner. On the day of Pentecost, the believers were both baptized and filled with the Spirit. Being baptized with the Spirit is an instantaneous event that occurs at the moment of salvation for a believer. Why can I say that so confidently? Because Paul wrote that if, you're not, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you are none of His. You're not saved without the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is an ongoing process. Peter was filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then in Acts 4, verse 8, it tells us he was filled again. Acts 4, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers and people and elders of Israel. And we'll study that when we get there. Acts 6, verse 5, describes Stephen as a man who was full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And then in Acts 7, verse 55, as he was wrapping up his last sermon, the Bible says... He, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven. In Ephesians 5.18, it instructs us, if you study the grammar there, to be continually filled with the Spirit. It's a present imperative. It's something that we are uh, to practice, being filled with the Spirit. It ought to be happening on a regular, continual basis. It's not a once-for-all time event. It's been said, one, one person has said, that to be filled with the Spirit means practicing the presence of the Lord. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You can find it taught all throughout the New Testament. Ephesians is a great book for that. You are literally constructed as a temple of God because you have the Spirit of God within you. But are you filled with the Spirit? Are you walking in the Spirit? Or are you resisting Him, grieving Him, quenching Him? That is up to us. You can be carnal as a Christian. You can be living for yourself. You can be putting down, resisting, quenching the Holy Spirit of God and His influence in your life. Or you can be spiritual. You can be living in yielded obedience to the Word of God and the Spirit of God are you filled with the Spirit of God? Notice the arrival of the Spirit, and then secondly, what happens? The acts of the Spirit. 
When the Spirit falls on these disciples in this church at Pentecost, what happens next? It says in verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Now again, we have to reiterate, before we look into what happens here on the day of Pentecost, Pentecost was a one-time event. I loved the way one author put it. He says, We must not make the mistake of teaching the experiences of the apostles. We must experience the teachings of the apostles. We have the experiences of the apostles recorded for us in the book of Acts. The teaching of the apostles is the rest of the New Testament. And we must not make the mistake of teaching their experiences, but rather to experience their teaching. I love that point. The point of the passage here in chapter 2 is that the disciples were filled with the Spirit. These believers were not seeking or praying for the gift of tongues. I want you to notice three things that are described here as the Holy Spirit comes. There is, first of all, a rushing wind. They heard an audible sound, and it was of a rushing mighty wind. When the Spirit came, it sounded like the roar of wind. It's kind of an interesting thing that we don't often, unless you've studied it, you probably don't realize this, that the word for spirit and the word for wind are the same. As a matter of fact, in John 3, Jesus uses both wind and spirit, the same words. He says, verily, verily, in verses 5 through 8, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And the moving of the Spirit on this particular day, was so mighty it made an audible sound. The same might would go forth and preach the gospel to all the world through these disciples. They heard a sound of a rushing wind. Then they saw tongues of fire. They saw tongues of fire. These were not literal flames that would have been kind of painful, don't you think? This was a representation of the Spirit resting on all the believers gathered together. It's a simile. It says they saw tongues like as of fire. It's a simile. It's a description. The fire-like appearance as as it came was one single unit, and then it says it parted in every direction and rested on each of those disciples that were present. This makes sense that it was described as fire because the symbol of divine presence had always been fire for the Jews. It was fitting to express the Spirit's energy as fire. John the Baptist had predicted in Matthew 3 that the Messiah would baptize in the Holy Spirit and in fire. It says in verse 11 of Matthew 3, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. 
But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and I with fire. And so we have this description of these tongues of fire that descended on each and every one of them. And then we have other tongues. They spoke in other tongues. I want to point out, I know I'm probably sounding redundant. The disciples were not praying that they would speak in tongues. They were not coached on how to speak in tongues. They did not have to practice or learn how to speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Notice four truths about the gift of tongues as we find it here in the book of Acts. First, they were known languages. The word other there means other than their native tongue. Each one began to speak in a language that he had not acquired yet. It was a real language, and it was understood that by those that were there from other lands. It wasn't jargon. It was real, intelligible language. Jesus had promised the gospel would go out into all nations. And here on Pentecost, all the languages of the earth are spoken and understood. They were other languages, real languages, known languages. As a matter of fact, the word you have as tongues in your English Bible is the same Greek word we get our word dialect from. They spoke in other dialects. Dialects. It wasn't gibberish. It wasn't a private prayer language. These were literally other languages, and not only other languages, but particular dialects of those languages. The foreigners that were there that day and heard these languages not only spoke different languages, they spoke different dialects of the same languages. For example, the Phrygians and Pamphylians both spoke the language of Greek, but they used completely different idioms. The Parthenians, the Medes, and the Elamites all spoke Persian, but in different forms. And so what was amazing to the people that were there is that these people are speaking in our language, and not only in our language, they have the same accent as I do. They're using the same phrases that I use. I could give examples, um, but I won't. But they were known languages. Speaking in tongues also, secondly there, was not and is not the normal result of being filled with the Spirit. Speaking in tongues was not, in the book of Acts, the normal result of being filled with the Spirit. If it was, there'd be a lot more tongues in the book of Acts because there are a litany of examples of people being filled with the Holy Spirit but they don't speak in tongues. Acts 4.8, Peter is filled with the Holy Ghost and he speaks in one language in that instance. Acts 4.31, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word. Acts 6 verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Ghost. No mention of tongues there. Acts 7, verse 55, but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven. That's Stephen. As he's being martyred, there's no tongues there. Acts 9, Ananias went his way and entered into the house, putting his hands on him and said, 
Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes, as it were, scales. And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Paul did not speak in tongues in this instant, even though Ananias said he would be filled with the Holy Ghost. So it is not the normal result of being full of the Spirit. They were known languages. Tongues is not the normal result of being filled with the Spirit. Tongues also were assigned to unbelievers. And you can find this. Anytime you find tongues referenced in the book of Acts, every single time there are unbelievers present. Because tongues were given, as we're taught in the book of 1 Corinthians, as a sign to unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 14, 21 through 22 says, In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and of other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not... For all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophecy serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. We also find, as Paul talks about the sign gifts, that he elevates prophesying as superior to tongues all throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 14.1, follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. 1 Corinthians 14.3, he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. Verse 39, wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. It was more valuable to prophesy than to speak in tongues. And then also back up a little bit in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul informs us, tongues would cease. He says, charity never faileth, love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Tongues were a sign, a miraculous sign given uh, to unbelievers to validate the message of the apostles. And tongues have ceased. Tongues were a miraculous sign gift. They were meant to authenticate the message of the apostles. Once the apostles were gone, all of a sudden, tongues were gone as well. Hebrews chapter 2 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. Isn't it interesting if tongues were expected to continue in the church? Isn't it interesting that the only early epistle of 1 Corinthians mentions tongues? The epistles that were written after, such as 1 Peter, Romans, Ephesians, don't mention tongues at all. If tongues were so vital to the spiritual health of the church, why would Paul leave it out for the rest of the New Testament? It doesn't make sense. The concept of speaking in tongues was unknown from the close of the first century until the 20th century, except in, who, in some fringe groups. Tongues, believe it or not, and speaking in tongues in the church is a relatively new, emotionally driven, and unbiblical teaching. They have ceased. But notice, thirdly, the amazement, I guess fourthly, the amazement of the spectators. The arrival of the Spirit the acts of the Spirit, then thirdly, the amazement of the spectators. Verses 7 through 13 says, They were all amazed and marveled. What amazed 
the spectators, the crowd. They were amazed for two reasons. First, they were amazed by who they heard. They said, aren't these Galileans? What is going on here? Galileans were basically considered hicks. They were. They talked funny. They pronounced their words differently. They were considered uneducated. For example, Mark 14, verse 70, Peter is denying Christ. And someone confronts him and says, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth thereto. It is obvious where you are from because of your accent. This would amaze, go on to amaze the religious leaders in Acts chapter 4 as well. In Acts 4 verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. We're going to look at Peter's sermon on another day, but think of this. Peter, who was a fisherman, would deliver a message grounded in Scripture and would see thousands of people saved. God can do incredible things with ordinary people. God can do incredible things with ordinary people. I used this illustration a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school, but we know William Carey is the father of modern missions, but he was just an ordinary man. He started his life repairing shoes. And we know that as the profession of a cobbler. He was very humble. And his humility often uh, came out. Even though he spent his early years as a cobbler, he became one of the greatest linguists the church has ever known. It's reported that he translated parts of the Bible into as many as 24 Indian languages and dialects. When he first went to India, some regarded him with distaste and contempt. At a dinner party, a distinguished guest hoping to humiliate William Carey, said in a loud voice, I suppose, Mr. Carey, you once worked as a shoemaker. Carey responded, Oh, no, not as a shoemaker, merely a cobbler. Carey didn't claim to make shoes, only to mend them. God can use the most ordinary men. Church, God is not looking for talented people. He is not looking for charismatic people or gifted people or good-looking people. God is looking for men and women that are available and obedient. He is looking for men and women in the church that are available and obedient and God will use and can use ordinary men. Are you available and obedient to Him? They were amazed by who they heard because these were just fishermen. And they were also amazed by what they heard. What did they hear? They heard the disciples speak in their native languages and in their particular dialects. The Parthenians, modern-day Iraq, the Medes, part of that empire, the Elamites from modern-day southwestern Iran, Mesopotamia was those that lived between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, from Judea, which is the region that was controlled by David and Solomon, 
Cappadocia and Pamphylia, that's Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. This is where the many of the seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation were. They were from Egypt. They were from Libya and Cyrene, which is Africa. They were from Rome, Italy. They were from Crete, which is the island there, the island of Crete. And there were Arabs and Nabataeans. They were the desert region south of the Dead Sea. All of these men were, and women were dispersed Jews that had returned from every region of Jerusalem and made the pilgrimage for the feasts of Passover and Pentecost. And many Jews criticized the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. They mocked. They made fun of it. They came up with reasons for it. Isn't it interesting that as soon as the Spirit comes and as soon as the miracles come in the church, immediately opposition follows it. And it would continue also. In Acts 5, when we get there, we'll find that eventually the apostles are arrested. The high priest rose up and all that were with him, in Acts 5, 17, and were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Immediately there was mocking and opposition, but they marveled at what they heard, all their own native tongue. The commotion drew the attention of a crowd and Peter would seize that opportunity. He would preach the gospel, and we'll see 3,000 people trusting Christ. A mega church in one week. What makes the difference, though? In the book of Acts, chapter 2, what made the difference in the lives of these believers? It wasn't just the apostles. There were 120 people in that church. What made the difference? It was the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Had they not gone back to Jerusalem, had they not been unified, had they not received the Spirit, the church would have never been born, or at least history would have been very, very different than what we have laid out here for us in the book of Acts. And you and I still today need the power of the Holy Spirit of God. We cannot do this in our own might. We cannot have victory over sin. We cannot have an impact in the community that is, that is around us. We cannot have a consistent testimony uh, and witness for Jesus Christ without the fullness of the Spirit of God in our lives. The difference maker for these disciples in the book of Acts was only the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And it is the same Spirit that dwells in every single believer today. You need to be filled with the Spirit. You've been baptized with the Spirit already if you know Christ is your Savior. But are you living, walking, praying, obeying, submitting to the Holy Spirit of God? Or are you quenching, resisting, disobeying the Spirit of God? Are you practicing the presence of the Lord day by day? You need the fullness of the Spirit of God in your life. We have the same message. We have the same Spirit. The power is there and available to us, and I don't think the gospel is any less effective. But perhaps Christians are. Perhaps the church is. But the Spirit and the gospel are still just as powerful today. If you know Christ is your Savior, 
You have the Spirit dwelling within you. But are you living by the Spirit? Are you walking in the Spirit? Let's bow our heads for the invitation this morning. We could spend weeks <laughs> preaching on and studying the Holy Spirit of God. But the basics is this. You have him. If you know Christ, you have him. He's available. But you have been given the ability, the free will by God, to obey or resist that spirit. And if you are sowing to your flesh, as Paul says, you are robbing your life of power. This morning, as we have our time of invitation, give that over to the Lord and allow Him, by His Spirit, to examine your heart. Are you walking in the Spirit, taking advantage of the power that's available to each and every one of us? If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you don't have that power. It's not available to you. We would love to take a Bible and show you how you can know Christ. How you can trust Him as your Savior by faith. And how he can then in turn give you the, the power by his spirit to have the victory you've been longing for, to break the cycle of sin and trouble and despair and desperation in your life. None of the people in this room have done it on their own. It is only by the grace and spirit of God. We would love to share that with you. However the Lord is working in your heart this morning, we trust that he is. We encourage you to take this time. Do business with him. Come to the altar if you need to. Come ask me questions if you need to. But let's take this time and use it and allow the Spirit to have that freedom.